0: Hey folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Moats, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our Advent and Christmas series on types of the Nativity, and here the guys will be in Luke chapters 1 and 2 with the announcement to Zacharias about the birth of John the Baptist as always we do invite you to check out those links in the show notes right now over on our youtube channel we are doing a theology of music video series with peter lightheart so we have a link down there in the show notes for you to subscribe to that channel and follow along with us as always we want to thank you so much for listening and we hope that you enjoy this conversation over this passage and here are peter lightheart alistair roberts jeff myers and james b john discussing luke chapters 1 and 2. Welcome to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motz, our media director, as usual, is uh, helping with the recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing everything out so that we can have it out to you, our audience. Uh, we wish you a happy Advent uh, and pray that uh, the Lord is blessing you during this time of preparation as we're moving toward the celebration of the birth of Jesus. And in recognition of the season, we have been doing a short podcast series on types of the nativity. The last several weeks, we've been looking at typological birth stories from the book of Genesis. Uh, And uh, we're jumping ahead now to the New Testament. We're going to be looking at the announcement of John's birth today, and then we're going to look at various passages that uh, record the birth of Jesus. Uh, And then we'll end at the end of the series with a consideration of Revelation 12 and the, the birth scene of the woman in the sky giving birth to a son who is being preyed on by the dragon that's in the sky. There's a lot more birth scenes in the Old Testament that we haven't paid attention to. We, we had to limit ourselves so that we could uh, get to the New Testament before Christmas. And so, we're skipping a lot of things. We'll be picking some of those up in the course of discussing the uh, birth scenes in the Gospels. That's one of, our, one of the themes that we'll be looking at over the next several weeks. Uh, we're still looking at types of the nativity, even though we're not looking at the Old Testament. We're looking at the way the birth stories and the announcement stories, the annunciation stories in the New Testament actually pick up on those Old Testament birth stories and annunciation stories, and how those types provide the the matrix and uh, and and the categories in which Luke and Matthew tell the story of the births of John and Jesus. So, we're still doing a kind of typological reading, but now from the New Testament perspective. Uh, we're looking at uh, the announcement, Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah, and the announcement of John's birth today. But I, let me say a few things just to set things up uh, about the prologue to Luke's gospel. He's writing, of course, to this uh, man named Theophilus, or at least has the nickname of Theophilus, lover of God, uh, and he's telling Theophilus that he's setting out the things that have been accomplished among us. And I think that's the the word that's used there is a word that contains the word. That's typically uh, translated as fulfill, uh, which I think is part of the significance of what Luke is telling Theophilus. He's not just recording as a matter of historical fact uh, what's what happened with Jesus and the career of Jesus, but he's talking about what is fulfilled among them. That's a that's an idea that's going to come up right at the end of Luke's gospel, and it's going it continues on through the Book of Acts, as we've seen in our studies in the Book of Acts. Uh, it comes in, into the back in, in the, at the end of Luke's gospel with Jesus teaching his disciples all the things concerning himself and all the scriptures and how he had to fulfill all that was revealed uh, from Moses uh, through the Psalms and writings into the prophets. Uh, but that, that uh, fulfillment theme is already, I think, hinted at at the beginning of Luke's gospel. Uh, and that tips us off to the fact that he's going to be telling the story of Jesus again, not just the bare fact, but as a fulfillment of Old Testament promise. And we're going to see that as we go through the, the announcement story. It's already there in the early chapters of Luke that uh, Luke is telling a story of fulfillment. Old Testament types are being fulfilled. I mean, Zechariah, just to get uh, get a couple of details that uh, highlight that, Zechariah, the name of John's father, means Yah remembers. It's the name of the prophet Zechariah, of course. Yah remembers uh, his promises. Yah remembers what he had done in the past, for his people, and he's going to do it again by sending new deliverers, John and Jesus. Elizabeth means something like "My God has sworn." So again, we have this theme of God's promises and God's work in the Old Testament now coming to fruition and fulfillment in the New. So uh, Luke, I think, is telling us right at the beginning of the of his uh, of his gospel that this is going to be a gospel about the fulfillment of those promises and those types. Uh, It's also interesting, I think, in the prologue that he says that these things are fulfilled or accomplished among us, and he's clearly talking about a kind of second-generation us. He says they're accomplished among us just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word have handed them down to us. So, there's eyewitnesses and servants of the Word who were actually present and involved with the the life of Jesus. He's talking about the disciples. He's talking about Mary, probably. Uh, Luke seems to have had contact with Mary That's how he got the stories of Jesus' early life. But he's also talking about something that's fulfilled among this second generation. So, the the things that were revealed and things that are promised in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. But as Luke sees it, there's the kind of ongoing fulfillment of those promises and of those types in the life of the church, in this life of the second generation. Of course, that's going to be a major theme when he gets to the book of Acts, as he's showing the things that Jesus had accomplished and fulfilled, continuing on in the life of the early church. The first two chapters of Luke are organized around announcement and birth stories. There's the announcement to Zacharias that we'll be looking at uh, today. Then uh, the announcement to Mary, the same angel Gabriel appears to Mary, and uh, we'll be looking at that in a couple weeks. And then we have at the center of this structure, we have Elizabeth's visit to Mary, where we have the, the singing of the Magnificat. And then we go to the births of the two children whose who, whose uh, conceptions are announced earlier you have an announcement to Zacharias, an announcement to Mary, and then in chapter at the end of chapter one, we have the birth of John. In chapter two, we have the birth of Jesus. So, we have uh, those uh, announce, annunciation and birth stories and seem to be surrounding the key moment in, this, uh, in these early chapters, which is when Elizabeth uh, visits Mary, and, and that also, of course, is a visit of John. Jesus and John's first acknowledgement that Jesus is the Holy One of God, the the, the Christ, when he leaps in the womb of Elizabeth. So that kind of of sets us up for uh, what Luke is doing in this Annunciation story to uh, Zacharias. One of the things that I thought about as I was just
1: reading over this text and and thinking about what we might discuss is just the very fact that we have here in Luke's Gospel John's conception. this is i guess at least in terms of human history the furthest back that the gospels go in terms of beginning their story and it feels to me like in some ways it's quite a low-key beginning i i know these are hugely important events but they happen to quite uh an unknown couple in in the big scheme of things a quite godly couple um the birth itself takes place sort of out in the hill country, it's a far cry from Matthew, isn't it, where we have instantly uh, a royal genealogy, things in Bethlehem, the arrival of foreign kings, you know, a a massacre. Um, This feels like much more of a um, a quiet uh, uh, beginning, which is going to gradually um, crescendo rather than like, you know, a, a bang from the very outset. And I feel that's something we could perhaps... As, as we go and, and look over some of these details.
2: On that detail, I think we can also see great parallels between the beginning of Luke and the beginning of 1 uh, Samuel. In both cases, there are women who are not particularly in the public gaze. They're people who would be otherwise overlooked. Um, can think about the way in which Hannah, her prayer is not recognised by Eli. He thinks that she's drunk. And... What we have here is, uh, again, a man who's lacking in spiritual perception. And we have another barren woman who has her womb opened. And in both of these stories, there is, as you know, this very early seed of something that promises a radical transformation, the establishment of a new kingdom, the coming of David, and this prophet that goes before David, just as Samuel is the one that leads to David, so John the Baptist is the one who will anoint Christ for his ministry as the son of David. And so that figure at the beginning, who is very, um, doesn't seem to invite our attention in and of herself, um, maybe invites our attention precisely in her parallels with Hannah, who's another character of that kind.
0: Yeah, that's a a great point, both of you. Something Alistair pointed out in an earlier podcast in this series, that uh, these major transformations in Israel's history, and now the major transformation in world history, begins in the secret places, uh, the very secretest place of a woman's womb. And as uh, James and Alistair said, it's beginning with uh, people who are not prominent, who are uh, not in king's court's Zecharias is a priest, but he's not a, a prominent priest he's not, uh, he's not mentioned else otherwise than in this in this passage so that uh, that's, seems to be a, a common theme of all these birth stories that you have this, uh, these transformations that begin in a very uh, a very secret and hidden way and then, uh, and then slowly grow into uh, major transformations
3: and this is a sign that God has not forgotten his promises to the remnant of his people uh, that there were Faithful people in Israel at this time. Uh, once you get into the gospel stories, you find a whole bunch of scoundrels and uh, uh, ne'er do wells, especially in leadership. But here at the first few chapters of Luke, we've got uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, and they are righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So there are faithful people. You got Joseph and Mary. They're also a poor peasant couple from Galilee, but uh, <clears throat> they're faithful. Uh, and then, of course, a little later, you have Anna and Simeon as well, all of them relatively marginalized in the bigger picture, simple people. But uh, this is the way God is going to begin his, his new work, by being faithful to his people and his promises to his people. Um, all these simple, powerless believers in Israel, suffering the reproach of their leaders, uh, and yet God is, um, is with them and is going to work through them to fulfill his ancient promises.
0: Just a uh, small point to reinforce what James was saying, too. Uh, Herod is mentioned, of course, in Luke 1-5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias, but he is mentioned just in passing. He doesn't become a character in the story in the way that he does in, uh, in Matthew's gospel. You have a similar thing in, in Luke too. You have this introduction to the birth of Jesus with this fairly elaborate description of the of the political situation. You know, the, it's a decree goes out from Caesar Augustus. This was the first census when Quirinius was governor of Syria and so on. So you have a couple of verses that are devoted to setting the political context, but then that is just, that is just background to what's uh, to the quiet things and the more hidden things that are
3: happening. Do you think it's useful to point out that in Luke um Luke being the gospel to the Oikimene, um, to the Gentiles, to the Gentile world. It's Gabriel, the angelic overlord of the Oikimene, who brings these messages. Um, They aren't just messages to Israel. And so if we think back to Daniel, um, their announcements that the uncut stone has arrived, the fifth monarchy, Michael, whom Gabriel predicted in Daniel 12, has arrived, uh, Gabriel only appears in Daniel and Luke, and so perhaps Herod, and also the Caesar, is the face of the fourth beast to Israel, face of Hellenistic Rome. And now, a faithful reader would would uh, understand that all the promises uh, and prophecies of Daniel are coming to pass.
0: You start off raising that as a question, Jeff. Is it worth pointing out? And I would say yes. I think that was worth pointing out. So I, I think that's I think that's exactly right. The Gabriel. It appears in Daniel, and then he disappears, and then when he reappears here, it's to initiate the fulfillment of the things that had been prophesied, but then sealed up. So it's almost like you have a the reappearance of Gabriel is the beginning of the unsealing of the prophecies that Daniel was given.
1: Right, and something that unites that to some extent, I think, is just in more generally the appearances of, of angels here. I mean, it feels to me like after the opening sections of the Old Testament. The bulk of it, God is communicating to people via prophets, you know, certainly in the days of the kings and kind of in, in, in most of the books of the Old Testament. That's the prime uh, vehicle of, of God's word going forth. But towards the end, um, you get more angelic appearances in Daniel and in uh, Zechariah. Uh, they are visited almost entirely by angels when the word of the Lord is, is revealed to them. And it feels like uh, there's a continuity um, in that sense, in the way in which Old Testament um, revelation takes place at the close of the Old Testament and, and the way in
0: which things sort of begin to move again here. Yeah, uh, traffic between heaven and earth is starting to pick up. Yeah, that, that, does, that does seem to be the case. I started thinking about uh, the angelic uh, role in the annunciation uh, the the cases i could think of uh, that um, uh, that are parallel in the old testament i mean the the most obvious case is uh, Manoah's wife who, to whom the angel of the lord appears and announces that she was going to give birth to samson uh, there's a uh, there's a uh, uh, angel of the lord appears to Hagar in the wilderness uh, she's already pregnant and but there is a kind of annunciation scene and then there's a um, there is a uh, announcement to Abraham and Sarah with the angel of the Lord that they're going to give birth to Isaac. So uh, the angelic uh, annunciation scenes are—you are, have those uh, those handful of ones. Are there others that I'm that I'm forgetting?
3: Well, perhaps also with um, Abraham and Sarah, angels come and announce the birth of Isaac. Right.
0: Yeah, and I think that maybe maybe that particular scene gives us a, a sense of what's the trajectory here. Again, we're thinking about types of the nativity and although we're dealing with sort of the antitype now, but we're reading it in the light of the types. So an angel appearing and giving an announcement for the birth of a child. I mean, the it seems to me that the strongest association is with uh, Manoah and his wife. Um, and John is being associated pretty strongly with Samson. I think Alistair's right. There's a lot of Samuel imagery around here, uh, around the chap- first two chapters of Luke. But um, uh, also, I think there's a there's a strong uh, hint of a Samson-like character, a powerful leader who's going to stir up the people as Samson did, is going to be filled with the spirit, and is going to be a, a Nazarite as Samson was. So, um, the, and that we're alerted to that already by the appearance of an angel who's giving a birth announcement.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know what you'll make of this, Peter. I mean, I, I, I was thinking of that as well. That Noah's wife, uh, her. Um, scene seems to be the major part of the uh, the major Old Testament allusion that's being invoked here, given all those connections that you mentioned. Um, one of the big differences is, is that there, the angel appears specifically to Manoah's wife and Manoah kind of tries to get himself involved, but really without much success. It feels like he tries to muscle in, but doesn't really succeed. It's, it's the woman who the angel interacts with primarily Um and yet here, it's specifically to Zechariah, it's specifically to the male. And I wonder if there's something in that. I mean, women were a major part of um, uh, Samson's life, um, often for all the wrong reasons. And I, I wonder if part of the contrast there is that John is going to be much more um, uh, faithful to his vow in in, in that regard and is clearly seen as quite ascetic uh, by the Pharisees when they start talking about him and, and and so forth and I wonder if that kind of contrast um, is being brought out here the way in which John is much more faithful to, to that initial vow
0: I'm not sure what to make of the that's a that's an interesting suggestion I'm not uh, sure what to make of the difference I, that was a that is a, a striking contrast we I mean, have angel the angel of the Lord appear in different kinds of guises, to men in the Old Testament, you have it with Abraham. Well, the Lord appears to Abraham and tells him that his his son is going to be named Isaac. Uh, and then the Lord appears to Moses. An angel of the Lord appears to Moses from the burning bush. That's not exactly a birth scene, but it's a promise of resurrection. So, yeah, the, it, this does seem to be a, a significant variation on on uh, those earlier annunciation
3: scenes. I wonder if this also might be. Uh, something that Luke does often where there's small incidents that he records are actually miniature summaries of the whole gospel narrative. So maybe Zacharias is like this. He's, he's uh, the man, he's the uh, stands in for the authorities in Israel. He's a priest. Gabriel comes preaching the gospel to him, but he disbelieves and in effect asks for a sign. Uh, and when he acknowledges the word of the angel by naming his son, John later, his tongue is loose, and he rejoices, and that's it's, it's, that's like what happens in Israel. So that Zechariah's story exemplifies the condition of Israel in those ways. So, so, like for centuries, Yahweh has been silent. There's been no prophet, and when Zechariah, the mute priest, begins to speak, it's a sign that Yahweh is saying another word, his his final word, maybe to Israel. But also, Zechariah foreshadows the response of the Jews. I, I just mentioned that in the Gospel and in Acts. So instead of being filled with joy and happiness at the glad news, uh, he uh, you know, the Israelites, especially the leaders are going to reject Jesus and are silenced in darkness. Uh, but Luke then appears to leave hope for the Jews in this story. Uh, when they confess that Yahweh has shown grace through John and Jesus, their mouths open again in praise. So um, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking that maybe he comes to the man, the husband The authority, the leader, uh, Zacharias, and all this happens to him uh, as a type of what's going to happen uh, with Israel's leaders. We might also see some parallels
2: between the themes that come into play at the end of the book and the ones here. At the end of the book, there's the ascension of Christ followed by constant prayer in the temple. And the beginning of the book is very much set in the context of the temple. It's the setting for the uh, annunciation of the birth of John the Baptist. It's the setting for the presentation later on, and then we have it mentioned also in the story of Jesus in the temple as a boy. And so, the prominence of the temple, the spirit, women in that context matches in many respects what we find at the end of the book. There's a, a sort of symmetry to it. Besides that, I I wonder what we're supposed to whether we're supposed to maybe recognize some significance in the names of the people involved. Um, think about uh, Elizabeth might make us think of Elishaba from the Old Testament, who's the matriarch of the whole priestly line. And this is a priestly line in crisis. Um, there's a call back to the final prophecy of the Old Testament with the promise of the one coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah. And in the character of Zechariah, we might also think about the reestablishment of the temple of the exile. Is there how much weight should we put on those details? Do you think that it maybe clues us into some of the themes that are beginning to percolate in the book? Or is this are they just random details that have no significance whatsoever? I mean, we're, we're all about that in Theopolis.
0: <laughs> so you're asking, is it worth pointing out that? these names are the names. Well, Yeah, the Zechariah Zechariah connection is interesting. Uh, and that that does fit with what you said about the framing of the book with temple, uh, people present in the temple begins with Zechariah in the temple, it ends with the apostles in the temple, and uh, it, it begins in prayer, it ends in prayer. Uh, so, yeah, the, that does seem to be, uh, it, the, the name would be an additional uh, factor in recognizing that there's a a uh, theme of a new priesthood new temple uh that uh, is laid out in, in in Zechariah particularly in the opening six chapters the visions of Zechariah where he's seeing the uh seeing the the establishment of a new system uh after the exile and uh so yeah that that makes sense to me that those names would be pointing in that at that direction
1: perhaps another c- connection with um, Zechariah and his prophecies is the way in which at the outset of the Book of Zechariah, um, things are quiet. There's no movement in the earth. The earth is still, and and that's a bad thing, isn't it? As the seventy years come to their um, fulfillment, um, it, it, it's a bad thing that the nations are quiet. And so God sort of intervenes and gets things uh, moving, gets the nations uh, moving and intermixing again. And um, that seems to resonate with a, lo- a lot of um, Luke, like as Jeff pointed out. You know, Zechariah is, is literally quiet. And uh, you get that statement, don't you? Um, Or is it in verse um, 21? They they were waiting for Zechariah. They were wondering at his delay. And uh, I take that to be a a more general um, allusion to Israel's mindset. They're wondering at God's delay um, in acting and intervening. And we get that sort of stirring up of the nations again, in um, really in, in Caesar's decree. I mean, I suppose it's not of the nations as a whole, but the Earth suddenly gets thrown into flux again as people are returned to their um, birthplaces. And, and it seems that the, um, the silence of, and the barrenness of the wilderness is, is suddenly being uh, brought to life and stirred up by the spirit.
3: That raises a question for me, too, about what is going on here at the temple? So Zechariah goes in and does his, uh, his duty serving as priest. And then in verse 10, it says that the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So what were they praying for? Um, The reason I ask that is because when the angel appears, he tells Zechariah, who is troubled in verse 12. uh, In verse 13, he says, do not be afraid for your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. So is Zechariah the priest? ministering for the nation of Israel, praying that his wife would have a child before the altar of incense. Is that what the multitude are praying or are they actually praying for the birth of the Messiah? Um, why is everybody waiting for Zechariah to come out and wondering what he's going to say? Um, that's all really fascinating to me. Did this happen every day? Uh, When the priests were ministering uh, before the uh, altar of incense, um, were they praying for something more specific? Is this an answer to the prayer of the multitude, Uh, or is it just Zechariah who's praying for a son to make his wife happy in her old age? It seems like the petition that uh, that Gabriel talks
0: about is a petition of uh, Zechariah himself, uh, in verse thirteen, don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son. So, we find out that they've been praying for her womb to be open and for them to have a child. Um, I, my guess is that verse ten, the reference to the prayer of the multitude, is like you said, a prayer for the arrival of the Messiah, and it, it seems like in the in the story, those two things are being those two things are converging. I don't think uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth are praying. To have a son who will be the forerunner of the Messiah. But as it happens, the Lord orchestrates things so that their prayer is answered. And that is also the same time the beginning of the answer to the prayers of the people.
1: I was going to say, in the backdrop here, we have obviously Anna at the temple, and she is there fasting and praying and, and uh, it talks about her speaking to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And then as John the Baptist, said, Ministry um, begins, it's in our chapter 3 and verse 15. It says the people were in expectation um, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he was the Messiah. And it, it does seem that, that there is a huge amount of expectation um, among certainly the godly remnant in Israel at that time.
0: I mean, if we're thinking in terms of Daniel and Gabriel's presence suggests that, then, uh, you know, they're, if they're thinking of the timing of Daniel as a uh, coming to its coming to its conclusion uh, Daniel is looking at the books of Jeremiah and thinking the time of the end of exile is coming uh, the faithful at the time of uh, in, in early first century they're looking at the book of Daniel and thinking that the time of fulfillment is coming so an agitation for the coming of the Messiah would be uh, would seem to be inspired by the prophecies
3: yeah that seems to fit also with Matthew 2 when uh, the wise men, the Magi come, and um, they're, they don't just mock and make fun of them for coming. Uh, the, obviously, the scribes and chief priests are uh, anticipating something. Um, they're all ready for something. Um, so, yeah. Should we see
2: any parallel between the story of Ezekiel and his being struck with muteness um, at the end of his call in chapter 3? and what happens to Zachariah here. And um, Daniel Bach, for instance, has suggested that the silence that the Lord imposes upon Ezekiel is a judgment in part upon some resistant silence that he has after his initial commission. Um, and maybe there's
1: some insight that we can find by comparing these two stories. I did wonder about that. I mean, another connection we could make. It's the fact that in uh, Ezekiel 4, immediately after he has been um, dumbstruck, and because he's been dumbstruck, he's told to take a, a clay brick and engrave on it a, a city. And this seems to resonate in quite a surprising way um, with the way in which Zechariah, when he is dumb, um, has to engrave John's name and write he's to be called John on a clay tablet of some sort, which is, um, both are quite unusual details in the context of the Bible. And so I, I've, I've wondered about that, but not, not been entirely sure where to go with it.
0: There seems to be a consensus that we don't know where to go with it. Is, is that what I'm saying? I dis- think so. <laughs> yeah, We have all joined Zacharias in his muteness.
1: <laughs> I mean, may, maybe it anticipates, in to some extent at least, the fact that um, Jesus's message is going to fall on, on hard hearts, um, as was the case for um, Ezekiel, you know, and, and maybe some of that is is, is present here. A, d- a detail I was thinking about as Jeff was. Talking about Luke's method um, was just the way in which here we've got um, Jesus and John's stories kind of intertwined. And as I was thinking about that, it, it occurred to me that that just seems a very Lucan way of doing things. If you think about his parables, you have, let's say, the what we could call the parable of the lost sheep and then the lost coin afterwards, and then the two sort of become intertwined with the lost um, son, the way in which you've got someone lost at home and someone lost far away. Um, In Acts, we saw this as we went through it in multiple occasions. You sort of have the story of Saul and later Ananias, and then the two are hooked up, connected with one another, and exactly the same with um, uh, the stories of of Peter and his dream, and then um, Cornelius and his angelic visitation and the way in which those two characters are brought together. And this just feels very Luke and the way he begins his whole uh, gospel here. And I wonder if it talks about just the way in which God is just synchronizing um, uh, what he's doing in this incredibly intricate um, way and, and beginning two moves of the spirit in two different places, but then putting those in, uh, in contact with one another. In addition to
2: that, we might think of the way that John often ha- or Luke often has pairings. Um, so we have pairings of married couples here, uh, or near married couples with Mary and Joseph and um, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then the pairing of Jesus and John. Later on, we'll have pairings such as the woman with the issue of blood and Jairus's daughter, um, other pairings such as um, Anna and Simeon, and. In a number of the parallel parables, we have pairings of a male character and then a a female character. And it seems to be a fairly consistent
0: aspect of um, Luke's style of storytelling. pick up on uh, something that James said. Uh, We've been looking at Old Testament foreshadowings of this announcement and of the conception, Elizabeth's conception, uh, John's conception, I guess, um, I mean, the, one, one of the prominent ones is uh, obviously Abraham and Sarai, because you have older couple with whose uh, the woman is barren. They're childless. Uh, and also the fact that the, the angel is giving the name of the child ahead of time to Zacharias. He's going to be called John. Um, Isaac is named uh, already in Genesis 17. Uh, Ishmael is also named before his birth. Uh, other, other patriarchs are named, um, uh, that we know of are named at the time of their birth because of something about them at the time of their birth. But you have these parallels between, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth and Abraham and Sarah, but then you also have the important discontinuity. This is the point, this is the illusion that, uh, hint that James brought up the important discontinuity of the role of the spirit in these births. Um, this child is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, uh, He'll be a Nazarite, verse 15 says, but then it's also said that he's he filled with the Spirit. He leaps in the Spirit when he comes into the presence of Jesus. Jesus is born and conceived because of the overshadowing of the Spirit. Uh, Matthew's going to make the same point that uh, the one who's conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that that's implied in various miraculous birth stories in the Old Testament. I mean, the way Paul reads uh, the the birth of Isaac is as a spiritual, you know, the He's a child of the spirit rather than the child of the flesh, so that's that's implicit in some of the Old Testament birth stories, but it's not explicit the way it is in the Gospels that these are that this is a new initiative of the Spirit, and the Spirit is the agent for these miraculous conceptions, uh, the Spirit who hovered over the waters at the beginning of the creation, the Spirit who uh, equipped uh, the the uh, the craftsmen to build the tabernacle, uh, the Spirit who is. Uh, uh, equipping the judges, that spirit is at work again, and forming uh, from from the womb, forming um, a new a new creation, forming new judges who are going to uh, uh, throw off uh, and uh, and uh, defeats Israel's enemies. So I think that as as far as I could uh, discover, that um, uh, that's unprecedented. There's no Old Testament example of the spirit. As the agent by which a conception happens, nothing, nothing explicit, maybe uh, maybe I, I miss something, but I, I think that's new here
2: and the emphasis upon the spirit in these opening chapters of Luke really is quite startling in just about every single one of the episodes the spirit is mentioned, and yet we go for many chapters of Luke afterwards and don't have that much of an emphasis upon the spirit. It seems that what we 're having here in part is an anticipation of what Pentecost will mean, the um, conception of Christ, the descent of the Spirit upon Mary is the overshadowing of Mary by the Spirit is a sort of, some have called the Marian Pentecost. The coming of um, Simeon into the temple is again described in ways, in the way that he prophesies in ways that might make us think of the way that another Simeon will prophesy in the temple context, as Peter gives his sermon on the day of Pentecost. And so maybe what we're having here is a foreshock of the great um, event that is awaited as the, there is this birth and, um, of the church as the body of Christ, as the spirit comes upon it and brings it to life as a new man. Um, and within these chapters, the way that the Spirit comes to the foreground, we're having a sense of what's already in play, even when no one else is recognizing it at this point. Um, I doubt that there was much attention given to the interactions in the temple between um, Jesus' parents and Simeon and Anna, but, and in the same way with Zechariah, there was some stir called, caused in the region, but... I doubt the news traveled much further than that. And so what we're having is, again, um, a small event that anticipates something much larger on a more public stage.
3: Um, yeah, that's good. I think it also just anticipates, especially these earlier stories, the fact that the spirit is going to settle on Jesus. And so um, Jesus is the one that the spirit descends on at his baptism. Um, and led into the, the wilderness by the Spirit, Jesus is the one who uh, begins his ministry here in Luke 4 uh, by uh, talking about this. The, he, he returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then almost immediately, we start seeing Jesus um uh, dealing with the other spirits small s the the demonic spirits the unclean demons uh, and there's this uh, this warfare that goes on with between Jesus so so the spirit shows up here but ends up settling on Jesus in a pretty mighty way perhaps you could see it as um,
2: as Christ comes into the world every single person who, is connected with that coming in some way, even from some distance, is caught up in the slipstream of the Spirit, whether that's um, Zechariah prophesying Elizabeth being filled with the Holy Spirit and the child in her womb um, jumping with joy at the coming of um, Christ, or the Spirit descending, overshadowing Mary, or the Spirit leading Simeon into the temple, whatever it is, all of these characters that will come in contact with Christ are drawn into the um, slipstream of the spirit by which he
1: comes. Yeah. And some of that could, again, look back to Ezekiel, couldn't it? We, we have um, very soon after the visions you were talking about, we have God's spirit um, departing from the, the temple um, and leaving to go and, and begin a new move of the spirit elsewhere. And um, I wonder if here at the outset of, Luke i wonder if we have something of, of the uh the return of, of god's spirit in a, in a human form in, embodied in, in a person here here at the outset of Luke um we've got a an interesting detail that um Anna is associated with um 84 84 years um so kind of uh, what is that 12 12 weeks um of years and um a while ago i did some calculations, between the leaving of the spirit of um, Ezekiel's temple and the birth of Jesus, you have um, 12 weeks of weeks, as it were, 12 um, jubilees, if if you accept a 4 BC um, date of birth for Jesus, that is. And so, um, I wonder if you've got sort of something of a foreshadow there too.
0: Well, bring this uh, discussion of the spirit back to where we began our discussion, which is with the quietness and hiddenness of God's initiative here, in contrast to what the Spirit does at the beginning of the book of Acts, which is a very public event, a loud event, one that attracts a crowd, and eventually, you know, by the end of the day, you've got 3,000 people baptized. But uh, that work of the Spirit was preceded by the work of the Spirit with Jesus, which is preceded by the work of the Spirit that we're talking about here in the early chapters of Luke, uh, that is nothing more than, you could, I mean… It appears to be nothing more than the spirit working to to uh, bring conception to uh, to unknown women. So, um, spirit's work in the gospel story doesn't begin with the spectacular public event of Pentecost. It begins with the quiet event of these conceptions, and then uh, grows into the the work that uh, Jesus does by pouring out His spirit at Pentecost.
1: Right, and all that just seems to be preceded by the faithful and quiet waiting of particular individuals doesn't it? it feels to me that as Paul is writing there are various people looking forward to eschatological events who've basically stopped working and that sort of thing and are, are being idle because the great climax is coming and, and what's the point anyway but here we get very much the opposite there are just people getting on with their duties you know Anna is, is Praying and fasting each day. Um, here, Zechariah and um, Elizabeth are, are godly, and Zechariah is doing his duties. It, it kind of sounds like uh, business per usual. In verse eight, he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty according to the custom. You know, it's just getting on with the um, the, 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 the daily things uh, assigned to him, but waiting in a faithful way.